This is Your Health in Your Hands, a podcast from The Open University. My name's Catherine Carr. Personal health budgets, or PHBs, are the next major step towards personalising healthcare. They've been designed to allow people more choice and control over the money spent on meeting their healthcare and wellbeing needs. These budgets have been trialled in various places across England, mainly for people living with long-term conditions. The NHS hopes to ultimately offer a PHB to anyone who could benefit. In this discussion, three people involved in implementing PHBs explain what they're going to mean for healthcare in England. I'm joined to discuss PHBs by Anne-Marie Mason, who's the director of a company called Health Your Way, which provides consulting services to clinical commissioning groups and advice to individuals who have or would like to have a personal health budget. Professor Julian Legrand is a professor of social policy at the LSE. He was a senior policy advisor to Tony Blair. And Alison Austin is the lead on personalisation and control at NHS England. And she's been involved in PHBs right from the beginning. So Alison, as I I said PHBs are part of a broader process of personalization in health and social care. When did personalization emerge as an idea? I think they go back to um, the, the 1970s when people uh, with disabilities, people uh, with, with complex needs, were um, placed in residential care. So you had young people who were in, in residential care and they didn't want that. Um, quite understandably and so there there was a a disability lobby to enable people to live independently and in social care in the the mid-1990s direct payments came in where people were given money so that they could organise their own care and support and live independently and self-directed support in in social care and I think in health we've moved on since about the, the early 2000s to think about actually to enable people to live better lives with the NHS. The NHS has to do things differently. Julian, you uh, were first introduced to the idea of personalisation through a visit abroad, I understand. Yes, I was attending a seminar uh, at Davos at the World Economic Forum where we were discussing whether people really uh, who were... um, Uh, terminally ill or very close to death, whether they really wanted all these vast amounts of high-tech and very expensive medicine injected, both literally and metaphorically, to keep them alive. And uh, we discussed the possibility of actually uh, maybe offering people the choice. They could have the choice of having all this high-tech medicine or maybe the money instead. Uh, And uh, there was was quite a lot of interest in that idea. And so when I got back to the UK... um, it was. Uh, I wrote a memo to the Prime Minister, who was Tony Blair at the time. He was quite interested in the idea, and um, the uh, the rest is history, so to speak. Improving well-being and health were those the benefits that immediately struck you towards moving towards personalisation in this way. I think it was more. It was the benefits of of making people feel more in control um, of their lives. Um, I mean, health is a very debilitating and very uh, demoralising and destructive psychologically as well as physically. Ill health is. And so, actually, this was a way of giving people a sort of greater control in a period of, of great misery and distress for them. Is that something that you have witnessed as well, Anne-Marie? Yes, absolutely. I think people feel um, more in control and actually feel um, have a lot more autonomy about things, really, and that um, 
it's a much more positive experience it's not just about the healthcare needs or their you know their well-being needs that it has a greater impact on their their quality of life as a whole you know it's not just about the person that person is usually um you know um in part of a family and that you know a condition has an effect on a, on a family as a whole and i guess with this new way of working together with the individual and the practitioners there's a whole new relationship isn't there to be understood and developed and perhaps that takes some time to bed in it does and actually it's not um the change in the relationship so moving from a very paternalistic model where clinicians tell people what they've got to do to a, a, a more enabling empowering model where um patients and carers are are seen as partners in the healthcare and actually there it's recognized that their experience of how their long-term condition affects them is as important as a, a clinical a clinician's knowledge so where it is very important for personal health budgets it's not in isolation and it's part of a a wider drive to make the NHS more responsive. When it comes to the individual then I guess whether it's the individual who's looking for a budget or actually the commissioning body there's a lot of negotiating and sorting through paperwork. I guess that's where you come in, Anne-Marie. Yeah, I guess if um, where it kind of starts is that people obviously need information and advice about what their options are, what it all is, and if it's going to be right for them, because it's not right for everybody. And that's um, you know one of the fundamental principles is that it must be voluntary for people um, but I guess once people have had their options people complete a support plan and sometimes people want to do that on their own but actually sometimes people need some support with that and that's um, something that Health Your Way would do is that we would um, work with the person to work out what it is they want what's working for them and, and maybe what isn't working. I guess from a policy point of view Julian as well it requires the commissioning bodies to fundamentally change some of their structures? Well, in some ways, yes. But I think it is more a change in in attitude. It was actually quite interesting when we first began discussing all this, was this question about whether uh, should patients be allowed to buy anything that they chose um, and to what should be the role of the clinician in trying to check it out. We were always worried about what we called the Daily Mail test, the danger that if you uh, uh, allowed patients to choose, e.g., a holiday in Bermuda... Um, that might be splashed all over the Daily Mail and there'd be all sorts of stories about waste of NHS money and so on. In the end, though, we did decide that it would be better to allow people to uh, spend money pretty much as they chose, but with this clinician approval and sign-off. That's difficult, though, surely, for the commissioning body. If they're dealing with a much wider variety of new providers, they're going to have to respond to the market in a very new way, aren't they? They are, and, of course, uh, and the other problem associated with that is that... Um, if people choose to spend money on providers that are different from the ones that the commissioner has been dealing with, the commissioner may have to spend extra money uh, in order to to fund these new purchases and these new providers, uh, while being unable to take the money away from the old providers. And Alison, in the trial period, I guess that wasn't significant because the numbers we were talking about are so small. But once this opens up more widely, that could be a real problem. I think it could be, and I think um, thinking about it in 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 perspective, we think the numbers of of people initially who will want personal health budgets are small. This is going to be a, a gradual rollout. I think when you think about commissioners, commissioners at the moment are supposed to be moving away from those very large, very rigid block contracts to a more person-centred, a more flexible approach. So it has to be part of that process. And actually, one of the the cases that made me feel really impressed during the pilot was one of the sites eight out of ten of their their stroke people wanted to to have a particular rehab service that was provided by a third sector provider and the commissioner went we don't we don't need 
to, to, to have personal health budgets. I should just be commissioning it if people want it. So actually personal health budgets could help commissioners look at what services individuals actually want and, and provide those more widely. But I do think that's quite an important point, that actually one of the interesting things about personal health budgets is it shows that patients and their carers are perhaps the best people to monitor the quality of the care being provided. We tend to, we tend to look to regulators or we look to commissioners to check on uh, the quality. But actually, the interesting, one of the interesting aspects of this, the, the, the best judge at the end of the day of the quality of care may well be the patient um, and their carer. Have you seen a, an outcome, Anne-Marie, in the work that you do where a care package has been sort of redesigned by the individual and it's so much better because their expertise, as Julian's describing, has been implemented? People have made very um, different choices to what, um, you know, maybe i not really thought of. And to give one example is where somebody had thought about... Um, the respite or the the break for the the person and the family wasn't working, and they actually chose to have um, a therapy room built um, in the um, in the garden, and it was a room that the person could use outside of their bedroom to use for the different therapies that they were accessing, and some of those were purchased through the personal health budget. That was used with about half a year's worth of their respite money, but they've still got it, you know, three four years on, and you know will continue to do so for years to come. Actually, if you're looking after your own budget, of course. You look for bargains, I suppose. You look to make your pound go further for you. Is that something that you've both witnessed? Yes, and actually it's something that a lot of the peer network talk about. They all know that um, that the NHS uh, isn't, uh, uh, isn't cash um, rich, as it were, and actually they want to, to make the money go as far as they can for their loved ones and actually are also very happy if they don't spend it all, which a lot of them don't need as much money. They're more than happy to give it back to the NHS because they know that other people could use the money and they actually feel, get a sense of satisfaction from that. I think actually people have always been fairly uh, aware that the NHS is heavily restricted the amount of money that it can spend. Um, And people are actually... Um, believe it or not, really quite economical quite often in the healthcare they use. But this this is actually an opportunity they have to, in a sense, cash that out. They can actually, uh, by, by their own actions, they can actually affect um, the amount of money being spent. And the result is often very favourable with, um, with people wanting actually to give the money back. Well, let's go back slightly to the timeline. Uh, how is somebody deemed eligible for continuing healthcare and therefore for a PHB at the moment? What's the measures that you use? It's people whose primary need is a healthcare need. They're, so they're usually people who are needing support with things like um, feeding, breathing, maintaining a safe environment, things like that. So there are, I can't remember if it's seven or 11 criteria, but there are, are quite a lot of criteria to go through to become eligible for NHS continuing health care. It can be quite a long process because obviously um, it, it's not just based on what people say, it's based on evidence. But it is quite a stressful period for people really to go through. So if people needed support, then that's something we could support them uh, you know, with. It's making it clear as well that you know the, con- the process of applying for continuing health care is a completely separate part to the personal health budget process. And if you're not eligible for continuing health care, then you, know, you should still be looking at social care to, to look for a personal, personal budget. And one of the really interesting things about that, because you think about the planning at the very beginning, you think about things like contingency, so what happens if my care is off sick, whereas in the traditional service, they don't think about the contingency. So the plans are actually can be a lot more robust uh, in the longer term, and we see that in evidence that people don't, don't come back. How then can we ensure parity across the country between CCGs in terms of who, when they ask, will get what they will get 
what services are commissioned in their area and therefore what care package they can design. Because it's all too easy. You talked about the Daily Mail test. It's all too easy to imagine that someone with rheumatoid arthritis living in the northwest has access to services ABC, therapies, DEF. Somebody living down in the southeast with the same condition may have a completely different situation to contend with. Ah, yes. Well, the dreaded postcode lottery. It's always a tension uh, in any health service or indeed in in the social care services to what extent you allow local discretion or the extent to which you try and enforce a national service where everybody gets the same regardless of where they live. We've principally gone down the route of allowing local discretion. So we're allowing clinical commissioning groups or we're allowing... um, Uh, local authorities to make the relevant decisions um, about what people are entitled to and what people should get. I think it's a tension that just simply can't be resolved uh, easily. Uh, You just have to accept that if you're going to allow uh, that we're going to move in a local level, then yes, you will get variation across the country. If you want a national system, then you remove all discretion from uh, local governments and from clinical commissioning groups and just have everything standardised at the centre. So what guidelines do exist for establishing what budget an individual gets at the moment? During the pilot programme, beyond continuing healthcare, there were a variety of different methods that we used because we took the approach was we shouldn't come up with a, a method for working out the money before we piloted because we could spend so much time working that out that we wouldn't actually have time to test. And so there's a couple of documents on um, the the learning network that talks about different ways that, that people try and we're continuing to develop those in early rollout stage. So things like people may look at the package of care that an individual gets at the moment and say, right, well, this is what it would cost. So that's your initial starting starting point. For others, um, it might be uh, worth looking at what's, what's your wider care. So actually, you're in, um, you go to A&E um, 20 times in a year, and actually you end up in hospital 15 of those for three nights. That costs X amount. And using a proportion of, of that money to enable people to do things differently. So the way the system works is there's a sort of a, an indicative budget that's set and then peop- to enable people to plan properly because none of us plan to buy a house without knowing our budget care planning's done and then the the budget's refined Julian I know you have some concerns about the way that costing might happen once personal health budgets are rolled out more widely would you like to explain what those are one of the issues is uh, whether what people can buy with their personal budgets now we might be moving to a world where, um, at the moment, uh, you can't buy, for example, GP services or emergency care through these budgets. I think, on the whole, um, I, would, I would not be in favour of moving in that direction, of extending personal budgets so they covered, in some senses, all forms of health care, because that would mean that all forms of health care had to be priced uh, and costed um, so suitable for the budget. Uh, and I think that might be... Um, that's possibly a step too far. So finally, for um, PHPs, we've talked about them requiring a change in relationship. What do you think overall are the benefits or rewards of moving towards an approach like this? I think really people really want to have a, a say in how their healthcare, you know, is managed. And you know, this at the, at the end of the day, we need to remember this is people's lives, and uh, they're not just another number on a on a tick sheet, really. So I think you know, people having the the, the benefits of this is real choice and control. Julian, one of the troubles with illness is that it, is that it diminishes your sense of control over your own life. It makes you feel a victim, uh, and actually that 
worsens both your sense of well-being and also your health itself. So actually giving people a much, much greater degree of control over this area of their lives, I think, will improve both their well-being and I think um, their long-term health as well. And Alison? Thinking about people who have mental health problems, people who've got long-term conditions, actually they want to get better. They don't want to, to, to use NHS services. And so as would happen in normal traditional services, if you got better, those traditional services would, would reduce. And it's the same for personal health budgets. You've been listening to Your Health in Your Hands, a podcast on PHBs from The Open University. The Open University. For more information, go to www.open.edu forward slash iTunes U.